I was thinking back to about um, 15 years ago, I think it was, and it was the very same weekend that we find ourselves on this weekend, which is the weekend of Pentecost Sunday. Uh, Pentecost was the feast celebrated 50 days after Passover, and uh, we find much of the narrative of both the Old and New Testaments uh, tracking with the feasts of Israel. And this particular occasion about uh, 15 years ago, as I say, I was traveling in North India, and there were, there were about six of us in a group from all around the world, and we were being assigned into various churches to preach on the Sunday morning of Pentecost Sunday. And so I was assigned a particular church that I was to attend and to bring the Pentecost Sunday sermon. There was an interesting little kind of chat going on about who should be sent where. Um, I was a Baptist, so they kind of had me, you know, kind of typed as what that would be like. Uh, there was another fellow, he was actually from Singapore, and he was a, a charismatic, he was a very charismatic Pentecostal fellow. And in this particular town in which we were meeting for the conference, where we would be given our, our pulpits for the Sunday morning, um, they were debating about who should go where, and there was one particular charismatic church in town, and they thought, well, Ian is probably not Pentecostal enough. And to my friend, they said, well, you would probably be very comfortable there, so we will send you there, and you can just um, you know, bring it on, bring on a good Pentecostal message on Pentecost Sunday. So I went off to the church that uh, I was assigned to, and I announced to them that I was very happy to be there because it was Pentecost Sunday. And as I looked around, um, you know, you sort of look for some response on people's faces, maybe some smiles or some nods. And I found that people were just kind of looking at me kind of quizzically. And so I went ahead and, and delivered my Pentecost Sunday sermon. And at the end of the message, uh, several people came forward and they said, we've, we've never heard of Pentecost Sunday. Now, without you know, giving away which denomination it was, this was a high church that went by the liturgical year. They should have known what Pentecost Sunday was. One particular man came up afterwards and he had a, he had a look on his face. It was, he was kind of alive. And he said, thank you for preaching about the Holy Spirit. We've never heard anybody speak about the Holy Spirit. And to do it on Pentecost Sunday, what a blessing. Well, his comment basically kept me going for the rest of the week. Um, and it was a delightful, delightful thing to reflect on. But as I remember that event, um, I also remember a really peculiar uh, narrative piece in the book of Acts uh, where um, Paul discovers something in his travels. And I want to read that to you in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. It says this, While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No. They replied, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. 
Paul said, well, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. Uh, I don't know what it was that Paul noticed in the assembly at Ephesus. Um, presumably there was something that was deficient, something that was missing, something that uh, he hadn't heard any conversation around as he had come to know this group of believers. And I, I can imagine Paul just having asked them that question about if they had received the Holy Spirit um, to their, you know, confused response about what Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? I can imagine Paul saying something like, I have some great news for you. I have some great news for you. I want to talk this morning about the fact that the coming of the Holy Spirit is great news. I mean, it is upper caps great news. I'm confident that uh, the apostles knew it to be great news. That, that's what Paul was saying when he found what, whatever was missing, and he said, the thing that you have not experienced yet is the Holy Spirit. I have great news for you. I know the apostles were committed to that. I know that Jesus thought that that was great news. When he talked to his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, in the vernacular, if you were to talk in our terms today, he might say to his disciples, I have some great news for you. It was great news for the apostles. It was great news for Jesus. It wasn't such great news for the disciples. Why not? Well, let me take you back to when Jesus announced this and try to explain to you why this would not seem like such good news. And then we'll try to round it out and understand why it is such great news for us. John chapter 16 is part of uh, what is called the Olivet Discourse. It is Jesus' long teaching um, about his uh, leaving through death, burial, and resurrection, and returning to the Father. And in the middle of this, he announces the coming of the Holy Spirit. He announces it in the spirit of great news. That's not the way the disciples received it. So John chapter 16, verses 6 and 7 says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Why was it not immediately good news for the disciples? Well, because the thing that was uppermost in their mind was that Jesus was saying, I am leaving. And, and somehow they've not been able to hear him also say the incredibly encouraging words that associated with that um, he brought to them as the announcement of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, you, you have sorrow now. It's filled your hearts. And, and it's sort of like you have the sense that Jesus is you know, bright-eyed and, and 
great smile on his face saying, I have some great news for you. And they're saying, that's not great. You just told us that you're leaving. They're going to have to struggle through um, what Jesus predicted would happen. Um, Not the least for them to figure out is that he declares that they're going to, to walk away from him. And he also says that one of them is going to actually betray him. Last Sunday, we thought about Peter and how Peter was in the middle of that mix and how Jesus, in, into the, the bravado of Peter, who said, everybody else might walk away. I never will. Jesus said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And, and so it was. So into the, the, the pathos of the day's events, um, the confusion of the activities of um, the praying, the arresting, uh, the trials, and then the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, into all of this, the disciples are trying to, trying to just find their way forward. And a big part of the problem is that they are saying, the master's going to leave. How could this ever be great news? And when Jesus says, I'm telling you something that's great news, it's not sort of a, but anyway, here's second best, or in any way is it Jesus saying, well, here's a consolation for you. It won't be so bad because here's something else that's going to happen. No, Jesus really has that spirit of the announcement where he says, this is great news. I want you to know that I'm not going to leave you alone. How would they have understood that? How would we understand that even as we look back and think about the coming of the Holy Spirit? What could this mean? Uh, Jesus says, um, you think that I'm leaving and that has caused great sorrow for you. But if I leave you, I will come again. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you again. And 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 they had no way of anticipating the resurrection of Christ as though that would be what he meant. Um, even after he was raised from the dead, they, they scarcely believed it until he appeared to them. So what he said would not have made sense, uh, and yet he was saying it to them as though it were great news. Well, the great news of all of this is that if Jesus did not leave, the Holy Spirit would not come. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize. It is not a second best. It is not a, well, um, since we can't have me anymore, here's somebody that is an understudy. Here's somebody who has been waiting in the wings. No, Jesus is saying, no, you have to understand this. This is great news. I need to leave because unless I leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. The version I read said the helper won't come. It is that word that we've seen many times called the parakletos, which means the one who is called alongside, the one who is coming to be the comforter, the one who is going to be side by side um, with those who are following Jesus. So Jesus says, when I leave, the parakletos is coming, the one who has been called alongside is going to come and I need to leave so that he can come. The disciples had no notion of what that could mean. 
And if we were in the disciples' sandals, we would not either have been consoled by that until we had discovered and until we had actually experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday is when it all made sense to the disciples. But let me bring you back to that verse um, where Jesus says why it's important for him to leave. He says, if I go, I will send him to you, him. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring a whole lot of benefits. And we'll just sort of take a, a little sight trail on this so that we can understand some of the theology of, of the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology, we call that, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Two things in this particular pair of verses, verse 8 and verse 13 of John 16, uh, are what Jesus says the Spirit will do. Um, he says when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he says, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. There are many, many more things that are associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, we read that something happened in terms of a phenomenon when the Ephesian believers received the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues. And that's what happens also in the day of Pentecost. We know about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we know about the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, the New Testament is now full of um, kind of a, a library of books on the topic of the Holy Spirit and all of the things that he came to do and he came to bring. But these two, first of all, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Or we might say sin and justice and judgment. Uh, in, in June, when we try to uh, fill out our understanding of the whole work of Jesus, um, we'll come back to these three ideas. But here Jesus says the Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict. That means he's going to prove the world wrong. When a conviction is entered, the discussion is over. Uh, a judge has brought a conviction, and the conviction is either innocent or guilty. And Jesus says, the judge, inferred here in our passage, the judge is going to declare the world guilty concerning sin and justice and judgment. Sin, Jesus will say, because they don't believe in me. Righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. Judgment, because the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, is being judged. Those are big ideas, and theologians have, have worked hard on trying to sort them out and say, well, what do those three things mean? How do we separate them one from the other? But Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, one of the primary things that he will do is he will prove the world wrong. As we have a look at our world, it's clear to us that the world is wrong in many, many ways. In some ways, the world is right. The world is right in many areas of science and of medicine, and, and um, the world 
largely re- remembers history well and writes it down and and the world um can do all kinds of things that are right things and good things um but on some fundamental things jesus says when the holy spirit comes he will do what no one else has been able to do that is to prove the world wrong concerning jesus concerning justice and concerning judgment um, we will talk about what that all means. But the first thing that we're, we're fixing on here is that Jesus says, it's really good that I'm leaving. It's great news because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong. Jesus, by the time the Spirit comes, will have been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. He will have ascended to the right hand of the Father. And All of those things are part and parcel of the way that the Holy Spirit will prove the world wrong, will indict the world, will render a verdict on the world um, concerning Jesus. They were wrong about Jesus. And today our task, more than anything else, is to set the record straight um, by what we say, by what we do, by how we live our lives about Jesus because sin, apparently, is constituted at its core by refusing to believe in Jesus. Then he says when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to set the record straight. He's going to convict the world. He's going to prove the world victory, um, prove the world um, to be wrong in, in terms of righteousness. What is living well? And finally, he says he's, he's going to prove the world wrong in, in terms of judgment. Um, there, there's going to be th- something that happens by the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit by which the world is set straight on the question of judgment. What happens because of what we do, how we live our lives. So the Holy Spirit will come to convict and to convince. Um, Convincing is that the Spirit comes and guides us into all truth. And that's a wonderful thing that Jesus is promising. You see, much of the struggle that the disciples had was that they couldn't figure things out. When Jesus said some things, they would look at him and they would would just shake their heads and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Our son Colin was famous for saying, I hear the words that you're saying. I don't understand what they mean. Very honest statement in, in many situations. Jesus says, you haven't understood. In fact, even in this chapter, he says, I have so much more to tell you, but you can't understand these things yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus says, he's going to lead you into all truth. By extension, he's going to lead us into all truth. He's going to open our minds to understand. He's going to bring both knowledge and wisdom into our minds and into our lives. And as we think about how that plays out, one of the most wonderful ways is through the scriptures that God has now, by his Holy Spirit, provided to us. Um, Peter tells us that that's how the Holy Spirit, or that's how the, the scriptures came, not because some person decided to write them, but they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has given us this this wonderful library that 
is called the Bible. That's what we call it. And this library is full of the story of Jesus Christ. Start to finish, it is the story of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, played out from creation all the way to the eternal state. And we have the great benefit of the Holy Spirit having come. And the second of the benefits of that, Jesus says, is that he will lead you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. You know, the Bible, the more I look into it, the more I have the opportunity to study, the more I see. Um, I'm, I'm going to run out of years before I get anywhere near the end of the study that I feel like I need to do. My ideas change. They are tested by God's word. They are tested in the community of uh, fellow believers, of scholars, of commentators, of preachers. Um, but we are just growing into more and more of an understanding of the great story of Jesus told by the Bible. And, and Jesus says, this is great news for you guys, because the things you couldn't figure out, he will explain them to you. A little bit later, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, just pay attention to what he now understands. He's got it. He, he's able to go to the scriptures, show how from the scriptures um, the story of Jesus is true. And all of that came not because Peter became smart all of a sudden. It came because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, this is great news. Um, Paul said to the Ephesians, this is great news. You don't have to keep living this kind of life, however it was deficient, because whatever is missing will be supplied to you because the Holy Spirit has come. Jesus is excited about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Paul is excited about the coming of the Holy Spirit. How excited are we about the coming of the Holy Spirit? So why is this great news? Sometimes I think that we have a, a hierarchy in mind when we think about the, the Trinity. We think about God the Father as the boss God. Um, we think about God the Son as the second boss God, um, the heir to being God. And then we think about the Holy Spirit as kind of a, a third rank. We're not really sure how to envision the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have an image of God the Father. He's, he's a big cloud-like figure, a father-like figure, grandfather-like figure in the skies. I'm not sure. With Jesus, maybe you go to your favorite storybook and you see a, a, a caricature of Jesus with little children and he's got long brown hair and lovely beard and big smile with the little children. And then you come to the Holy Spirit and you say, well, I don't I have no idea. Is What is it? Is, is it an it? Jesus called the Holy Spirit him. Um, and is the Holy Spirit in a body of some kind? And anyway, um, maybe the Holy Spirit isn't as important as God the Son and God the Father anyway. Well, we're wrong if we think that way. Because the, the story of God is that God is a trinity. He's a triune God. He is an eternal friendship, always has been. And I come back to this time and time again, that the story of creation is the story of a plural God 
who has one identity, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who talks to himself, who talk to themselves, and say, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, Spirit. So if we don't pay attention to the Spirit, we're missing out entirely on the, the composition of the God that we know and love and serve. And so let me come with you this morning to who the Holy Spirit is in terms of how he relates through time, through the story of Jesus um, to the Father and the Son cooperating together in this eternal friendship, this eternal communion into whose image we are all created. Let me invite you to think about um, two illustrations. Um, the first illustration is from sports. And it is this, imagine a ball game. So I'm, I'm going to violate some um, common understandings of what ball games are like. But this is for those of you who won't like the second illustration quite as well. So now you know I've got your attention. So a, a ball game, and let's say there are three innings, only three innings in this ball game, uh, and there's a new pitcher for each of the innings. One pitcher pitches the first inning, second pitcher pitches the second inning, and the third pitcher pitches the third inning. Um, our team wins the ball game uh, on the basis of the great pitching from um, the first inning, second inning, and third inning. So uh, there's, there's this ball game idea. Second illustration is from music, and it's the illustration of a symphony, a symphony of three movements, um, first, second, and third movements making up together um, a lovely symphony. They both will illustrate for us um, the activity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the way that time plays out the story of Jesus planned by, um, provided by, and executed by the, the triune God. So let me suggest to you that, um, um, preferring the second illustration, if you'll bear with me, that we think of, of God in time um, having a masterwork that plays out in three movements. God's masterwork in three movements. The first movement we might call God's plan. The second movement we might call Christ's provision. The third movement we might call the Spirit's performance. So if you like, the first picture is God the Father. The second picture is God the Son. The third picture is God the Holy Spirit. The ball game will not be over until all three innings have been played and all three pitchers have pitched. It is like a symphony in that the symphony is not complete until all three movements have been played out. When the final um, chord has been struck or the bow has been um, sounded or the, the trumpet has finished, whatever, when, when that's all over, 
all three movements will have come to a completion. The work of God in time has those three innings or those three movements. And each of them is characterized by a, a main player. So the main player, no pun intended between the, the two illustrations, the main player, first of all, is God the Father, secondly is God the Son, and thirdly is God the Holy Spirit. And as I said, the first movement, or the first inning, uh, we call God's plan. It, it focuses on God the Father. And, and the other parts of the Godhead, the other um, persons of the Trinity are in attendance, but they are not the key to the particular inning or, or movement. In the first, the Father is the one who, uh, in his mind, plans so we find uh, a lot of Pauline theology around that, where Paul talks about the, uh, the foreknowledge of God, the, the wisdom of God before creation, before um, time began, that the things were planned by the Father. At the table were the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. In the second inning, or the second movement, we have Christ's provision. Because all of the things that God had planned in the first, the, the son now comes to provide. Uh, and, and he comes to do the heavy lifting of fixing the creation that we have broken. He, he comes to do the heavy lifting of accomplishing the plan of God. So all of the things that God had in mind, he, he hands to the son and says, can you go and do this? And the son, you remember when he's praying, says to the father, there's not another way, is there? And it's as though he, he knows intuitively that the father says, no, the plan is the plan. And, and so the son says, yeah, it's your will, not my will. So I will do what you have sent me to do. I have come to do your will. And the second inning, the second movement is the great work, the incredible work, the powerful work of Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The third inning, or the third movement, is characterized primarily by the person of the Spirit. Um, the main player is the Spirit. The Father's plan has been laid out. The Son's Provision has been worked out, and now the Spirit performs what God planned and what Jesus provided. So the time that we are living in, as we will see as we get into our next series, the time we're living in is not a time when we all just wait and bide our time to say, when everything is said and done, we will go to heaven to be with Jesus because that was the crux of the whole plan. The time in which we are living is the third inning or the third movement, and it is directed by the Holy Spirit. No less important than the work of the planning providing by the Father and Son, by a person no less important than the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit comes to put into action what the Father planned and the Son provided. 
He comes, Jesus says, because now the provision is there. He comes to convict the world on sin and justice and judgment. He comes to lead us into truth because there's a whole third inning, there's a whole third movement in which the Holy Spirit looms large. That's why Jesus said it was great news. That's why the whole, the, Paul to the Ephesians said, this is great news that I have for you. The, the coming of the Holy Spirit is great news because it will be the completion of all of the things that God planned, Christ provided, and now is worked into and out of the people of God uh, in time and space. And we have yet um, to study many, many things about what that will all look like. It's not, to put it in a capsule, it's not about uh, getting us to heaven, it's about getting heaven to earth. And what will that look like as the Spirit now has come and how much longer will he be here among us doing what he has come to do? How, how, how much power is there still available by and through the Holy Spirit? The third movement, or the third inning, is the Spirit's performance. I think my favorite uh, um, of the works of music that I, I typically listen to is, is the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. And I, I encourage you to, to uh, dig out your old LP or cassette or just go to Spotify. It's simpler that way. And listen to the Moonlight Sonata. And I want to ask you something. Every time you listen to the Moonlight Sonata, I want you to pay attention to the third movement, the third movement in particular. The Moonlight Sonata would not be complete without three movements. Beethoven wrote three great movements. Uh, the first movement is um, called Adagio Sostenuto, which means slow and sustained. You may remember it goes sort of like da 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 da, da and it's, it's lovely. It's, it's pensive. Um, the second movement is Allegretto, which means fast. Not quite as fast as it could be, but faster than slow. Um, and, and it has a lovely melody, and, and when you listen to it, it'll be familiar to you, I'm sure. The third movement is presto agitato, which means very fast and agitated. I want you to listen to the third movement, lest we forget that the great work of God, God's masterwork, had three movements. That great ball game had three innings. When you go to the third movement, um, it begins with these grand arpeggios. The, the pianist runs from left to right, from the bass up into the treble a couple of times, followed by striking these chords. And it, 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 it shocks you. It's, it's not like the first or the second movement at all. I, I imagine, you know, taking a trip with a, a, a musical uh, aficionado to Roy Thompson Hall or somewhere and being taken into the, the first balcony and you're sitting with this person who has um, season's tickets and has invited you along and says, I wanted you to come to hear the Moonlight Sonata, but you have to listen to the third movement. 
And maybe after the first and second movement, there has been that obligatory sort of pause when people can cough, 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 and then it gets silent again when we see that the third movement is about to begin. Boy, when the third movement begins, the person who brought you is going to look at you with a knowing look on his face. He would have guaranteed you that the third movement is the charm. That without that third movement, without those arpeggios, without those striking notes, um, the Moonlight Sonata would be deficient. It wouldn't be finished. I, I want you to remember God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when you listen to the Moonlight Sonata. When you get to the third movement, think about the Holy Spirit. The third movement is no less than the first or second. In fact, the third movement brings the first and the second to a maturity, to a completion. So does the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, this is great news. I know that you people are, are sad about this. I, I know that you're downcast. I know that you're filled with sorrow. But if I don't leave, he won't come. And when he comes, he will finish the symphony. He will finish the ball game. When the Spirit comes, he will do so many things, including those that we have seen in John chapter 16. Let me finish by reminding you of what we find in the story in the book of Acts of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Think of the third movement, arpeggios and striking notes from Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force, no one could tell where it was coming from. It filled the whole building. Then like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks. Arpeggios, striking notes. The third movement came with the Holy Spirit. That's good news.